Every once in a while, I will think about how many phobias there are. How almost anything you can think of, there's a, an associated phobia. People who are afraid of bugs, people who are afraid of, uh, you know, peacocks, anyone? Uh, here and there, there are <laughs> phobias. Noelle might be a little bit afraid of cats, I hear. I don't know. But don't use that against her. It's not my fault if you do. But it's really interesting to me that they all have a name, a Latin name, a fancy-sounding name. You all know claustrophobia is the fear of enclosed spaces. Any claustrophobics here? None. I would like to test that. That sounds like a good church activity. That could be done social distanced. You know, you get inside a very small area. We see how long you can stay. What about nyctophobia? Anyone know what that one is? Fear of the dark. Maybe there's some nyctophobics in here. We all know acrophobia, fear of heights. That's one that I have. Or I think of it as uh, being smart about heights, in that if you fall from them, you probably die. But what about jurassophobia? That is a deep cut. Anyone familiar with that? Jurassophobia? Sounds to me like it would probably be a fear of, like, dinosaurs. Like you're driving, I got a little jurassophobia. Every time you look at that side mirror, you think a T-Rex is coming. But that's not what it means. Jurassophobia is actually the fear of growing up. And it's an, it's an actual diagnosable disorder. Now, most children, most teenagers have some reservations, some fear about what it's going to be like to get older. They're worried about each and every step along the way. And facing those fears is part of growing up. And we've all had to do it. But there is a bizarre, tragic exception known as jurassophobia, in which this fear is so intense and so pervasive and, and so kind of deep-seated that it can actually run someone's life and ruin someone's life. Take the case of a 14-year-old boy named Devin. In a case study, in a journal, his doctors wrote this. Devin does not eat much because, according to his own research, food contains nutrients needed for physical development. In addition, he has adopted a stooped posture to hide his height and began to distort his voice using lower volume and higher pitch than usual. If people tell him that he is taller or older, he becomes extremely upset and cries. Due to this restriction of food intake, he has a weight loss of more than 12 kilograms. He is currently in the 25th percentile. Now, after treatment, the two doctors reported back some happy news that he had some improvement, but also added, Devin continues to express a fear of commitment and responsibilities that he feels will be required of him in adult life. Now, I think we all tend to uh, exhibit those even in adult life, but that is something that for some people apparently makes them just not want to grow up, not want to do anything, but continue to be a child. And that is pretty much what we see St. Paul talking about in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. A, a resistance to actually growing up. We read about this same thing in different passages in the scripture about I would like to, to give you the meat of the gospel, but you need the milk still. You need maturity. You need to grow. It is not an uncommon thing. But I think it's, it's interesting, the context of it here, because you'll remember that last week we looked at the idea of God endowing different people with different gifts in the church so that they could fill different roles within that church. We saw that having spent the first half of this letter talking about unity, Paul then went into the diversity of gifts within the unity. And he began to emphasize that some people are called to do this, some to do something else, some to do something else entirely. Here we see that the reason God creates this diversity of gifts 
is that it can then unite us in unity and build us up with unity. That, that it's not simply for self-expression or individuality or I gotta be me, but rather it is to build up the church. That is the reason that different people are given different gifts. Then he gives us a peek at what a church will look like if those gifts are not executed properly and what a church will look like if they are executed properly. In verse 14, he tells us what it looks like if they're not. He talks about us no longer being children because if we are children, he says, we will be tossed to and fro. Continuing in a state of being a small child, and the word he uses can mean anything from an infant up to maybe a three or four year old, or, or even someone a little older, if it's in, in the sense of they are not yet able to stand on their own two feet or live of themselves. Uh, everyone starts out as a small child. I don't know if you know that. It is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. Everyone will be small, and then they will be kind of stupid, and then they'll get smarter, and then they'll get bigger. Even Jesus himself grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. But we're not meant to remain in that situation. I've often heard the wanting to remain a child called Peter Pan syndrome. Have you ever heard that? That one's not a diagnosable thing in the DSM-5 or anything, but it's often floated about, oh, that guy's got Peter Pan syndrome. And I take umbrage with the name because... To me, Peter Pan had taken on far more responsibility than the average child in that he's the leader of an independent colony of boys, right? And it never devolves into some Lord of the Flies dystopia. And he's carrying out and waging a protracted war against actual pirates. He is exercising his gifts. What Paul is talking about here is a situation in which we are not exercising our gifts for the good of the whole, for the building up of the body. Paul describes this state in spiritual terms as being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. It's a state of arrested development, reaching a certain point and stopping any more growth. By contrast, when he describes in verses 13 and 15 and 16, what it is that we do want our churches to look like, he goes back to the illustration of the body, which he usually employs in a fairly general way. He'll say, we're the body of Christ. Or he'll say, we are the body, the church is the body, and Christ is the head. Which tells us a couple things that are apropos to our text today. First of all, it tells us that Christ must be the one who gives us our direction and our purpose and our plans rather than us. If you've ever seen a cartoon in which someone's head and their body become separated and the body's running around trying to find the head and bumping into things, you, you understand the head's got to call the shots for obvious reasons. Secondly, it tells us that if someone tells you, I love Jesus, but not the church, that's like telling a woman, I love your head, but not your body. Not a strong move. When he talks about spiritual gifts, the apostle usually gets a more specific with this body metaphor. Flip over to uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, starting at verse 14. He says this, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, they would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, 
where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? And so he gets into the specifics, how different parts of the body carry out different functions, and all of them are needed. This tells us there are no second-string members of the body. There are no first-class members of the body. There are just members of the body, all given gifts, all to be carried out for the good, the building up of the body. This makes me think of uh, when I was in uh, musicals in high school. In the musicals, in fact, I met Aaron. I met Aaron in a play, but we were also in musicals together in theater. And, and you'd try and get more and more and more important a part each and every time. And one of the big kind of rewards for that was the end of each performance when they did the curtain call. They start with the, I guess, the least important people, right? The chorus. They all come out and bow, all of them at once, and people clap. Hey, you did a good job. Then you start bringing in people who had speaking parts and, and solos and duets. They might come in three or four at a time and bow, and people And then finally you bring in the stars, right? And everyone stands up, and they all clap, and there's a standing ovation. Aaron was the star of the school play one time. Uh, but then, after the end there, as almost an afterthought, everybody goes like this, and the lights go down on the orchestra, and the clapping kind of yeah, 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 golf clap, which is ironic to me that they're the afterthought and they're the only professional musicians in the whole place and everyone else is just a high schooler with a pipe dream. But that's how it works. It's not this way in the church, although we often try to make it. I know a lot of pastors, and I even feel it occasionally in myself with this desire to kind of, well, I need a bigger curtain call. I need a bigger church, more people, more, more kind of clout. It goes with it. Or someone who's gifted in song might be thinking, I need more people to hear me, more people to celebrate me. There's a tendency to want to make this about us. And yet we have this picture of a body with different parts. It tells us that everyone is indispensable, but no one is the point. Every gift is indispensable, but none of them are the point. They're all there to build up the body. In this passage, though, Paul gets even more into the anatomical minutiae with his body metaphor. Beyond eyes and ears and hands and feet, he speaks of every supporting ligament. And in doing so, he shows us the purpose of every diverse gift of every different part of the body, and that is to grow the body and build it up to full maturity. He's literally talking here about bodybuilding, because he's talking about a body, and the word he uses is not grow, but build. Only unlike most bodybuilding, like you see on those bodybuilding magazines, it's not about puffing up and swelling up muscles for show. It's about simply growing into maturity so that we can serve one another. Probably this word build here is a call back to chapter 2 when he referred to the church as a temple being built and built up. But unlike a physical building, this body is involved in building itself up. That's how growing bodies work. I see my son sometimes wolfing down more food than me, and I think, all right, in two days, I'm going to look at him, he's going to look two inches taller, right? They have these growth spurts. Next year, this time, he's going to be taller than my wife. Mark my words. And yet, unlike with a 12-year-old kid, the church's growth is not automatic. Read our passage carefully, and you'll see that the growth comes from the head, but it takes place as each part does its work. What exactly does this look like? St. Paul is glad you asked. First of all, it looks like unity. One thing that I love about the Apostle Paul is he's not afraid to be a bit of a broken record. 
You read his, his epistles, and they come around and around like a record to the very same spot, but also like a record. Every time they come back to that spot, they move a little bit deeper in and deeper in and deeper in. And he's done the same thing as he treats unity here in this letter. Because he was talking last time in verses 3 to 6 about something that we have, right? There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father and God of all. This is a unity that we already have. It belongs to us. We just need to keep it. But the unity that he's talking about here in this passage is something to be striven for, to be worked toward, something to be obtained. And it's, and it's a two-part unity. Look at verse 13. If you shut your Bible, rookie move, open it back up to Ephesians chapter 4, and look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. There's two sides. It's a two-sided coin, this unity. First of all, the unity in the faith. Not unity in faith, but in the faith. This isn't talking about my faith, your personal belief, my belief. It's talking about what Katie read to us about in Jude, which is the faith once for all handed down to the saints. We need unity in that faith. This is the content of what we teach and believe. And if we don't have unity there, the body will never reach maturity. Now, we don't need total uniformity where everybody is on exactly the same point of every little, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin minor doctrine. But on the faith handed down to the saints, we do need unity. That's why Jude commands us to contend earnestly for that faith, to assert it, to struggle for it. Because if that gets lost... Even if we have some kind of lowest common denominator, mile-wide, inch-deep, quote-unquote, unity, we've lost everything already anyway. Unity that compromises with error and heresy, or unity that compromises with sin, is a cancer in the body of Christ, not a blessing. We see the fruit of this in churches that have lost the gospel entirely, and exist as social clubs or, or political machines, operatives of the right wing or the left wing, and maybe everyone within that body is on the same page about these issues, but it'd be better if they just boarded up the doors and the windows and walked away, or at least renamed it as First Community Political Action Committee or, you know, Springfield uh, Self-Esteem Building Center and Gourmet Coffee or whatever it is they actually do, rather than pretending to still be a church. Own it! In the body of Christ, unity is only valuable if it's not just unity in faith, but unity in the faith. The other side of the coin is unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. If unity in the faith refers to specific doctrines that can be laid out and learned and affirmed and confessed, like the Nicene Creed or the Baptist Confession of Faith, this other aspect of unity is far more personal. And you say, hold on, knowledge of the Son of God sounds just like the first thing, the faith handed down. No, the word knowledge here is an experiential knowledge, a relational knowledge. Like, I know Aaron. I know Richard. I know David. I don't just know about them. I know them. And we want more and more this kind of knowledge of the Son of God. Relational. Even if a whole congregation signs the dotted line that we believe and affirm the same set of doctrines, if they don't truly know Jesus, the body will never grow to maturity. 
If, however, we hold to an Orthodox Christian faith, affirming together the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, his death for our sins, his resurrection for our justification, and all the rest of the faith once for all handed down to the saints, and if we are helping each other to know him more deeply, using our individual gifts to help build others up to maturity, then maturity becomes attainable. This leads to the next item on Paul's list as he describes this doctrine of maturity. Becoming more like Christ, or as he puts it here, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. See, there's more to this stuff than just checking the right doctrinal boxes and having a quote-unquote personal relationship with Jesus. Now, that makes you a Christian, certainly. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Or as uh, it's put in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your lips, Jesus Christ is the Lord, believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You're a Christian at that point, but you're a baby Christian. And we don't want to remain baby Christians. Perhaps the most pervasive problem among Christians today is that we feel like we've got those two things, right? We, we have belief and we have a personal relationship of some kind. I feel like I kind of know Jesus. And so we just say, all right, I'm set, right? I was over here. I was lost. I was outside of Christ. Now I have come into his presence. I am spoken for in Jesus. I know I'm saved. And way down there is maturity. And maybe right at first people start taking just a few steps in that direction, but then eventually they go, ah, you know what, I'm just going to camp out right here. Oh, I was going to sit in this, but it's full of ice. I'm not that committed to the bit. I also had mittens and there was going to be a Bernie reference. The chair itself is the, uh, is the illustration. We plop down and we say to ourselves, this is all I really need. And it sounds hard to attain maturity. It sounds difficult to spend my life pouring into the lives of others, building up the church of Jesus Christ so that all of us can reach a sense of Christ-like maturity. And so, hey, I'll try reasonably hard not to break any of the major commandments. I'll come to church often enough where it's not something I used to do, but something I sometimes do. I mean, you won't find me at Bible study, and you're not going to find me serving the church in any real way, but I'm part of the whole thing. It's something I have now, and so I put minimal thought into maintaining it. It's like when you buy a couch. Now, most people keep a couch for 13 to 15 years, or so says the internet. During that time, what do you do? You might scotch guard it at the very beginning, because you just spent a lot of money on it. You vacuum it from time to time. You flip the cushions. You see if there's any change down in there. But other than that, you just sit on it for 15 years. We just sit on the sofa because, hey, we already did the hard part. We dealt with this pushy salesman. We, we looked around at tons and tons and tons of different couches and argued about it until we found one that all, all could agree on. Yes, this can be the family couch in the family room. Then we had it delivered to our house or apartment. Maybe you had to bring it up some stairs. Pivot, 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 right? Get it into the, the, the final, the den or the living room, wherever it's going to go. Agree on where it's going to sit. And then you go, whew, that's taken care of. That's done. The couch thing is dealt with. And now, I don't think about it. I only think about it once in a while when I flop down on it and it supports me. When I need to maybe recharge for a while. That's its whole function. 
Now it's this old, comfortable thing, getting older and more comfortable all the time. That is often how we view our faith as well. I only think about it a few times a week, maybe when I need to plop down and recharge. That's its whole function. I have invited Christians to Bible study only to have them tell me, I think I already know enough Bible. Now, they didn't say that with their mouths, but that was the subtext. That was the message. Look, I've gone deep enough. God and I kind of know each other. We know where the other stands. Let's leave it alone. We'll leave it at that. We've taken the idea of childlike faith, believing fully in him and relying fully on him, and we've twisted it. We don't want to be childlike Christians. That is a far different thing from having childlike faith. Hey, I don't know the different books of the Bible and what they say and all that stuff. I don't really get into understanding any of this theology or who God is or, or, or what any of these terms mean or, or what Paul is trying to do in any of these books or what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. I don't really contribute to the church all that much with my time and my gifts, but hey, I know Jesus and that's enough. Paul is not going to let us get away with that, okay? Take the whole thing, put it aside, and continue toward maturity. Paul tells us that if we are going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to follow Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 14, we're told that we should be children toward evil and mature in our thinking. We have to be children when it comes to evil, meaning innocent, but mature in our thinking. We have to grow up as believers. If the body is working correctly, no part of it will just stop growing before it reaches maturity. That would be disastrous. I, I can think of several uh, different movies and television shows that, that use the idea of a full-grown human with teeny tiny baby hands for comedic effect, and it's kind of funny in a twisted way because it looks so bizarre and macabre, but that's not something that we should strive for. When we're using our gifts for the building up of the body, each of us will find ourselves challenged and equipped and motivated to grow, to continue growing in unity, in knowledge, and in holiness, in living a Christ-like life. We read in Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We come alongside each other and help spur one another on, using our gifts. We even confront each other if needed to help each member of the body and the body itself become more mature and more Christ-like. And the end result, St. Paul tells us, won't just be internal. If we're really growing in our faith, growing up into Christ, being built up, we won't be able to keep it inside. And having matured in our faith, we will be more and more equipped to speak the truth. And that is exactly what he tells us we need to do in verse 16. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Let's put a pin in that for just a second and go back to verse 14 and look a little closer at what we are to avoid. As he describes 
the, the kind of immature Christian and immature church that ought to be just momentarily the case on the road to maturity, he says, let us no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. He's describing, first of all, how little children are fickle, blown back and forth. If you've had little children, you know this is the case. When my son was really little, I, I got too into buying him all sorts of toys because part of me, I think, also uh, has uh, Jurassic phobia or whatever it was called. I think we spent, actually, I kept track, and we spent $238,000 on Thomas the Tank Engine stuff, which is now in our attic. And Calvin loved it and played with it, and we built tracks together and all this stuff. And then one day he was like, ah, I'm into Hot Wheels now. I'm a Hot Wheels guy. So I said, oh, all right. Hot Wheels are only like a buck or two bucks a piece. Just, I'm pelting him with Hot Wheels all day. Hey, Hot Wheels! And then he's like, oh, no, you know what? I'm into Bob the Builder. Now I'm into Ninja Turtles. This is how kids are. It's how I was, probably how you were. And we love them for it. It's cute. They're trying to find what it is they're into. What is their passion? He also references how children are easily deceived. That's fun, too, isn't it? I remember when my little nephew, Bray, uh, was, oh, I don't know, just old enough where I thought this probably won't work. I did this deal, where you take your thumb off. I might even be doing it well enough for you to see what I'm doing, right? You say, oh, look, I can take my thumb off. And I remember he looked really, really intently. He said, do that again. And I thought, oh, he's going to call me on it. And I did it again, and he went, wow. <laughs> I thought that's hilarious. He's smart. He's, he's graduating this year. He's in the National Honor Society. Smart guy. But he was a child then. And he was easily deceived. We love that about kids, how innocent they are, how passionate they jump from thing to thing. But fickle, windblown hearts and spiritual gullibility are not characteristics of a mature believer or a mature church jumping from one thing to the next. I think many churches can kind of write their history based on what fad they were chasing in a given decade or even a given year. Children, they lack the experimental knowledge that Paul's talking about. So easily fooled, so easily distracted. It's not their fault. That's why God gave them parents to protect them and to build them up and, and teach them and train them. And he's given us one another and elders and pastors and teachers and deacons and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, as the church on the whole is continuing to struggle reaching people, maybe more and more every year, the two things I see most frequently offered up as the solution are the same two things Paul associates with immaturity. The world's fads and false doctrines. Just dull the sharp edge of the gospel, you know, kind of tone it down a bit, and people might come. You know, then they won't be offended, and then they'll come in. You can tickle their ears a little bit, and later on they'll probably be reading the Bible and go, oh yeah, there's a little more to it. Or just focus on this buzzword, or that trend, or... or Casting vision or leaning into this season and unlocking your potential. And, you know, the gospel stuff can come later, or more likely not at all. Now, Paul tells us here to speak the truth. Speak the truth. In fact, he doesn't even say speak the truth. The Greek here, you don't see the word speak at all. The word speak, laleo, it's not there. Aaron's writing it in her Bible. Might not be a bad idea. Speak the truth. I mean, it's a decent translation, because what else would you do with the truth? But what's going on is he's taking the noun, truth, aletheia, and making it a verb. Truthing. 
Truthing in love is what he says. It's just like how the word evangelize is taking the word gospel, a noun, good news, and making it a verb. Good newsing people, gospeling people. That's what evangelism is. Now, with news, there's only one thing that verb can mean. You deliver the news. You proclaim it. You spread the good news. You speak the gospel. Despite what you might have heard, you can't live the gospel. Jesus already did that. He died on the cross. He rose again. Now we proclaim that gospel. But with this verb, truthing, maybe it does mean a little more than simply telling the truth. I mean, it does mean that. In verse 25, he's going to say each one speaking truth to his neighbor. But it may also mean living out the truth. Because that can be done. There are many truths, many biblical truths, that you can communicate with your life. Living out for others to see that God is love, that grace is free, that sin can be forgiven, that there's freedom from bondage in Jesus Christ. And all of it we're called to do in love. In fact, in love occurs twice in this short little passage. And he says, speak the truth in love. And in verse 16, when each part is working properly, the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. Speak the truth, live truthfully, build up the body, and do it all in a loving manner. That passage that Katie read earlier from Jude about contending earnestly for the faith, that has often been cited, even by me, I, I confess, as sort of a license to really be assertive and aggressive about the faith and come out swinging and shouting and rarely listening, even as permission to be kind of a, I don't know, a jerk for Jesus. And if called on it, we would tend to say, well, I mean, look at the scriptures. Look at how Elijah, Elijah's out there with the prophets of Baal, and he mocks them because they were leading the children of Israel astray. So it's, it's good and right to mock people who might be leading others astray. Or look how Jesus delivers the seven woes to the Pharisees and calls them a brood of vipers. So I'm okay. I'm allowed to call people names as long as they're sort of biblical. And then, of course, don't get me started on how Paul in Galatians 5.12 gets really sarcastic and delivers the infamous um, cutting comment. If you know your Bible, you know the one I mean. And we say, see, full-on sarcasm and totally cynical thought is very biblical. But consider this. Paul wrote 37,360 words in the New Testament. Of those, 16 of them make up that verse in Galatians. That's 0.04%, also known as 0% statistically, of what comes from the pen of Paul. Add in the other stuff, because Paul got that way from time to time. You foolish Galatians, Cretans are all liars, calling some of his opponents dogs in Philippians 3. Add it all together, pile it all up, you still have way, way less than 1% of what Paul has to say in the New Testament. Or Jesus' seven woes to the Pharisees. 450 words long. It's a bit longer, but that's out of more than 30,000 words of Jesus recorded for us in the Gospels. Rather than looking to these few examples of what we might consider really tough love and saying, ah, I'll follow in those footsteps all the time, maybe we should ask ourselves, like Paul, like Jesus, is my speech already 99.9% .9 blatantly, obviously building up? If rebuke, and especially fairly harsh rebuke, is a teeny tiny fraction of what comes out of my mouth, it's a lot more believable that there's love behind it. But if it makes up a good chunk or even a majority of what comes out of my mouth and comes out through my actions, that's a problem. 
We see here that even when we contend earnestly for the faith, we've got to do it in love. When we confront a brother or sister about sin, we've got to do it in love. The truth ceases to be fully the truth if it's not delivered in love. And it ceases to be in love if we compromise the truth. Both must be present. Just look at the medieval church to see what the truth without love looks like. Sure, they had plenty of error mixed in with the truth, but we all have some level of that. I mean, yeah, they added new sacraments and new rules and rituals, indulgences, but they had, they had the Trinity. They had what we would call the core of the faith, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the death of Jesus as the Son of God himself, his resurrection. They had all of his teaching, and yet, in defending that teaching, they would imprison and torture and kill people. And it breaks my brain every time I try to get my mind around that. Even our forefathers, the Puritans, out of which come our Baptist movement. They had a lot more truth that they had rediscovered from scriptures. There's a lot we can learn from reading their writings, but they defended that truth largely with merciless punishments, banishment, public humiliation, and the like. If we really have the gospel, it won't just change what we say we believe. It will change how we interact with the people around us, how we live our lives. Both what we say and how we say it, and the nonverbals, rooted as it is in the cross of Christ, the truth cannot be manifested any other way than in love. And this should be nowhere more uh, true and relevant and evident than it is within the body of Christ. Sadly, though, this is often not the case. The stereotype of a church is... A bunch of people who are petty, gossiping, backbiting jerks, right? The masters of the backhanded compliment, able to hold a grudge for years over like a stolen casserole recipe. And yes, this is a stereotype. It's cartoony. It's stuff you, you're made to laugh at on television or radio or whatever. But, but this sort of thing usually has a kernel of truth to it. And it can't hurt to ask, why is the perception of a regular community church, a Christian church, that it's basically a junior high or maybe even a grade school for grown-ups. A whole group of people spreading rumors in spite instead of preaching truth in love. Unwilling to put childish things behind. I think the answer is found in the idea of a plateau. The word plateau, hardwired in from sometime in the late 80s to make pastors shudder. It's like a jump scare in a horror movie. The fear is that when a church stops growing, growing, growing and begins to plateau, something's very wrong. Now we're failing, and right around the corner will be that church's demise. There may be some truth to it, but I think that we need to trust God a little more than a lot of that kind of pragmatic thinking does. In 2020, I'm sure a lot of churches that had been growing plateaued because they found it very difficult to do much outreach. Our church, of course, we saw a decline. No new members in 2020. Very difficult to get new members in that setting, but lost five people to death. And then another one right away in January of 2021. But I've belonged to churches where they were numerically growing quickly, largely through, through worldly means, but growing, and yet the maturity was plateaued. Why have I only ever heard the warning, watch out for a plateau, in regards to attendance or membership? To me, it's at least as great a cause of concern if the maturity of the body is plateaued because the growth of the body described here is not numerical. It's growing up into Christ. 
growing up. And that is something that a church has to always be about the work of doing. We talk about how people grow and grow and grow until they reach full maturity. A church will never. Because a church, ideally, will continually have new people coming in, new converts, children being raised up, and will always need to be always about the work of growing up, of maturing in Christ, and using our gifts to help that happen. During my time in ministry, I've done a handful of funerals for young people. It's one of the hardest things about ministry, is having to to try and face that, because there's no answers, There's, there's, there's nothing but... This is an example of the brokenness of the world and offer up Jesus as the, the answer to all of our struggles, but it's, it's all off in the distance from that point of view. And people mourn and mourn deeply for so many reasons in that kind of situation, but a main theme that comes up is that this person's future, this person's full maturity, what they will blossom into and become has been lost, has been stolen. And we think, what, what might they have done? Had they lived? What might they have accomplished? What might they have become? And I think that question has to be asked often of churches as well. Churches are are, are dying every day in America. Now, you could say of this church, if we went under tomorrow, hey, almost 100 lived a long, good life. I don't like that thinking. Continually maturing and growing up, the question has to be asked, Sure, yeah, we've been around a while, but what might we become this year? What might we accomplish for the kingdom this year? What might it look like? You know, when you don't see your nieces or nephews or grandkids for six months at a time, and then you go, whoa, what happened to you? They shot way up, their voice dropped, or whatever happened. You go, wow, you're growing up. If we could look ahead a year, what might it look like to see Judson Baptist Church have matured and grown up that much more into Christ? What might you become? And where in your heart might there be lurking some jurassophobia that says, I'm a little afraid of the next challenge. I'm a little afraid of the next thing. I'm a little afraid of what it would look like to truly exercise my gifts for the building up of the body. And how can we pray, God, help me to face that fear? Well, I'll tell you the best answer is to have your fellow believers praying for you, that we're praying for one another, that I'm praying for you, you're praying for me, all of us praying for each other, and all of us encouraging each other to actually utilize our gifts, not for our own glory, not just for something to do, not so that we can look like we've got it all together or we're extra generous, but so that the body of Christ can continue to grow up into Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a challenge that we find in this passage to not continue to be children in our thinking, in our faith. Lord, a challenge to grow up and become fully mature, even the maturity that we see in Christ, Lord. As that sits there on the horizon, we ask that we could take a step toward it and another and another that we would find ourselves using our gifts more and more, not just to continue the existence of a local church, but to build the kingdom of God on earth, to build up this body into maturity, to reach out beyond the walls of this place with the gospel so that others will hear it and follow you. Lord, I pray that where we may have become complacent and just sat down and decided it was good enough Lord, you'd take the chair out from underneath us, pull us to our feet, 
and, and push us ahead, that we would follow you into this next year. The best days of your church we know are ahead because we know that your return is ahead of us. Lord, we pray that as we look forward, we would find hope. We would find ambition to, to lift you up. We would find more and more a desire to make you famous among the nations. And Lord, we would, all of us, every last one, be using our gifts to that end. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.